Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Aqualia, and specifically their great product, Solver. And Solver is an amazing calculation app that works the way your mind does. When you're working out a maths problem on paper, the more, more powerful than a calculator but simpler and quicker than a spreadsheet, Solver can help you solve your math problem. Please visit the URL in the show notes for more information. This episode is also sponsored by Space Nation and specifically their app, Hue Party. If you have LifeX or Philips Hue bulbs, Hue Party can control them and add some neat effects to it. It's a free app for up to two bulbs, so you can check it out at, uh, with no commitment at slash pragmatic for more information. I'm John Chigi, and today I'm joined by my guest host, Guy English. How you doing, Guy? Great. Happy to be here. Cool. Thanks for agreeing to come back on. Uh, before we get stuck into the topic today, um, which uh, oddly, uh, given you know, you're my guest host, is related to software, um, hmm. yeah. uh, I just wanted to quickly cover off a few things. So, firstly, uh, a quick thank you to, uh, and I love the name, the username, Yo Crystal Ball, <clears throat> in the US for the lovely review in iTunes. Thank you very much. Uh, but more poignant, as of today, I'm going to be live streaming uh, each show of Pragmatic. So we, I used to, we used to do this with Mixler uh, on episodes 10 to 14. But then episode 15, we started having technical problems with it, decided it was best to stop. That was back when I was at uh, Fiat Lux. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a while between drinks. So it's been uh, exactly 20 episodes since the last one that was live. Uh, but now we're going live again. So this time, however, I'm doing it uh, the more... I had to say traditional, but how about the more current way, which is uh, there is an IRC chat room on freenode.net. Um, the chat room is hash pragmatic show or one word. Uh, if you go to the URL techdistortion.com slash live, you can listen to the stream. You can access a stream there uh, or you can use the embedded IRC chat box in that window to join in during when the show is live. Of course, uh, if you're if you have uh, an IRC client, like I use um, Collo Colloquy, is that how you pronounce that guy? Colloquy. Colloquy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm more close speaking. enough. Yeah, that's I'm, what I used to. Yeah, cool. It's not bad. Uh, for the, so I never know how to pronounce it, but anyway. So feel free to join in, and uh, what we'll we're, what we're going to be doing right now, first of all, is um, I don't have the show but up and running yet. Uh, working on it. It will eventually. Uh, it probably in the next week or two. I don't want to set a deadline because that's crazy talk. So yeah, at some point <laughs> I'll get Showbot running. I'm actually going to take Casey Lister's Showbot for a whirl. Um, I had a look at the five by five. I know. I know. That'll, that'll work out well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on, it's not too bad. I'm kidding. Yeah, I know. It's not too bad. So I, I, I want to, I want to give that, I'm going to give that a shot anyway. So um, well, hopefully we'll see the results of that in the next next few weeks. In the meantime, I'll just go back over the stream. So if you have title suggestions, feel free to make them. Uh, any contributions, obviously chime in at any time. Uh, but because it's a very focused uh, show, I tend not to go off on too many tangents. Or I try not to anyway. So, uh, you know, there'll be a balance. But what I want to do differently is if you have a question, specific question, either for me or uh, my guest host, then please ask it in the chat room, but prefix it with an apostrophe Q or apostrophe QA. 
The idea is that after the show's wrapped, that I want to have a question and answer session for people. So what I want to try and do is separate um, the, 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 the actual questions and any interruption of the show, and we'll have it as a separate Q&A session at the end, uh, which is hardly a new idea, but it's just something I want to try. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Um, now, just one more quick word about um, sponsors. I've been really fortunate to have some great sponsors in the last few months. And honestly, if, if you would like to sponsor the show, just go to techdistortion.com slash sponsor to get in touch. Uh, this is the first and only time I'm going to uh, to spruik sponsoring the show on itself. I just I think it's a bit strange. But I haven't done it before, so this is the first, but I won't do it again anyway. The very, um, basically, the, my, the rates I've got are very aggressive. They're, they're targeted at indie developers. I think that we're about one third of uh, the cost of relative to total downloads uh, of some of the other podcasts out there. So I'm trying to be as good value as possible. Uh, and just to give you an idea, uh, it's sort of, it's absolutely blown my mind, but our, our most popular episode just recently cracked 20,000 downloads. So I'm I'm over the moon and stoked at the same time. And a big thank you to everyone who's given the show a chance and uh, especially to those that are still listening. And of course, an even more special thank you to those who are in the chat room right now. So hello, chat room. Right. That's my pre-show preamble blurb at, uh, and now we can get stuck in. Okay. <laughs> so... Um, I have always wanted to go into this one in a little bit more depth, which is my code's nicer than your code. Everyone likes to think, <laughs> you know, the, that they know the best way to write their software, the best way to structure it, the best way to name things, the best way to put it together, essentially. And honestly, I guess back in the early days, I say the early days, when programming was first a thing, there really wasn't much choice. I mean, you had machine language assembly language and there really wasn't much latitude it was like you know move this there you know op codes and so on there was no artistic license because there was no art there was just that was just it so i guess you could structure your program slightly differently but you know it wasn't object oriented it wasn't yeah it was just you had to deal with it you had to speak in in machine speak in order to actually do anything so when there is no choice there is no problem right but as soon as you start having a choice you start having a problem so as we evolved and we added abstractions and sort of increased that distance between the programmer and the, and the machine level of, of, of code. So we had the opportunity to make the code potentially more readable and potentially more maintainable. And the biggest leap, I think, is the, in the idea of object-oriented programming. And that makes the, the software potentially easier to separate and improve independent components of it and distribute amongst larger teams. But I say potentially, when I say potentially, I mean... It, a lot is about how you go about that implementation. So just because you have the opportunity to make it more readable, more maintainable and so on doesn't mean you actually will just by virtue of the fact that you can, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so um, yeah. And um, when it comes to, to writing better code, before we dive in, just, you know, draw, just get this clear right now. It's not all about other people, you know, People will say, okay, I'm going to write this code to be more maintainable for the next program that comes along to look at it. Okay, great. That's nice. But seriously, you're going to come back to it in six months' time and you're going to look at this code and it's you're going to be a total stranger. It'll be, I don't get it. And I often, I, I get the same kind of BS from younger programmers all the time that I'm, that I'm working with. It's like, I'm always going to be maintaining my own code so I can do whatever the heck I want. You know, structure doesn't matter. Comments are optional. Yeah, I'm going to call my loop variables count one, count 
1,970 county account count if I want because I can, right? Hmm. Then they give you a look. They, they pout and they go all sullen and crawl, fold their arms and sulk, <laughs> you know. <sighs> Not sure. have, you, have you ever witnessed that phenomenon? Yes. Um, it's been a long time because I've been a professional programmer for, uh, I don't know, about 20 years now, I guess. Hmm. Slightly, wow. slightly, slightly, longer, slightly <laughs> Long longer than I've been doing engineering or thereabouts. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, at? long enough. So, you know, when you've been working with professionals for long enough, that kind of stuff drops away. Yeah. But certainly when you're starting out, um, I think especially if you're... So when, you, when you're starting out and you're learning the way to do things, I think individually you get to a level where you feel really accomplished and you you are you can probably do all kinds of really fancy stuff and you understand the way the computer works and that your code works um but translating that into professional space is totally different because once you start with working with other people everything changes right like you're no longer the smartest person in the room no. hopefully with with any you know with any luck or at least you shouldn't be um yeah i I've and so yeah, you need to learn to be able to work with each other, and that that sort of necessitates a, a common culture or a culture of the code, right? Like a, a common way of doing things or a common way of uh, writing out variable names or uh, function formatting, whether it be camel case or, you know, the underscore hyphen one, whatever they call that. <laughs> snake, snake style, whoever, whatever the various different styles are. Um, how about agree? How about we just agree on indentation of your code? Space, yeah, well, that's that's an, yeah, that's an extra horrible one. It's the answer is spaces, by the way. No, what? No, it is. I'm totally I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, well, I'll tell you one in a bit. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. Cool. Cool. Good. But yeah, you need to be able to agree with all of this kind of stuff um, in order to become like an actual professional programmer, because. You're no longer just dealing with the machine. You're dealing with the machine and a bunch of fuzzy humans. Absolutely. Uh, Hopefully not too fuzzy. And that, no, but well, I mean, everybody's got their own different perspective on stuff, right? So yeah, exactly. It's like a, it's a, an extra order of magnitude in terms of trying to get stuff straight. Mm. Um, so if you can keep in mind the way your program works, if it's all hacked up and crazy with go-to statements and jumping around, then that's fine. But you need to be able to stand that not everybody's going to be able to have the, the same subset of knowledge of the code base as you are. Yeah. And so you're just increasing the order of difficulty if you don't um, properly organize and, and document your code. Yeah, exactly. It, it's sort of you start out and you'll create something and it looks really awesome to your eyes. And it's like, oh, this is the most, this is really cool. And then um, with time, as time passes and you start working with other people and you start showing it to them and if it's not standardized code, they no longer see it as, oh, that's great. They see it as that's horrible. And right. you start to appreciate when other people actually follow all of those, you know, all of those little details and all of the rules and making sure that the code is consistent. <clears throat> suddenly that becomes your measure of, gee, that's great code because, you know, you're, part yeah. of, you're, you're doing what everyone else is doing and you know, you're actually working together as opposed to on your own. Yeah, I should say that I'm not a style guide Nazi in that, um, well, some people are, right? Some people sure. that if you put, like, let's say you're writing C and you put the, you put an if statement and you put the, um, the opening, uh, curly brace on the same, on the same line as the if statement, 
you can either put it on the same line or the, the next line indented the same level as the if, right? Can you picture what I'm saying? Yes, I can, yes. Okay, so you can do one or the other of those. Uh, some people would insist on one or the other happening. Uh, you know, in code that I, certainly that I'm responsible for, I, I'm okay with minor stuff like that. Right. Like that, that's a minor style thing. It's more when you, you know, if you start naming your Objective-C method names with like underscores in them, that that gets, you know, this now we're getting into the... This underscore is underscore a underscore method. Right. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> verboten. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. Fingernails and, you know, on the chalkboard. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like minor stuff, mm. spacing. I prefer a lot of blank space. Uh, I don't like dense code. Uh, yeah. It makes, Some people do. Yeah, you're right. Den denser code is is more difficult to read. I, I try and space out uh, logical blocks. So if there's a if there's a section of code that has a particular function, then I'll try and separate it with a line above, before, and after it. Try and yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, sometimes when I do that, um, especially back in the day, C didn't let you declare variables uh, that weren't within a pair of curly braces. Okay. Because if curly braces would define a scope. Okay. But you, you you could put curly braces in the middle of a function. So somewhere in the middle of the function, I might put a curly brace, write a bit of code, like declare what which new variables I need, write a bit of code, and then close a curly brace. So those variables were only visible within that small scope. And I could put a comment just on top of that sort of section, uh, that scope, mm -hmm. describing exactly what it did. And now what I've done is I've encapsulated exactly what this little section is going to do. And if the overall function starts getting too big, well, I've already got my sections kind of mapped out so I can know which ones to pull out uh, to make their own little functions with. Yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm discovering as we try to chat about this how hard it is to describe visual, yeah, <laughs> visual code stuff over, over the radio. But yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is. And sometimes when I'm on, on this show, I, I'd give anything for a whiteboard. But um, yeah, uh, it's just not going to work. So anyhow, all right, cool. And we've made a we've made a bit of a start, but I guess uh, there's a few things I just wanted to quickly sort of I feel like a starting at the basics is really with with comments, but before we get to that actually, there's a, an essay that I found uh, when I oh, I don't know how long ago it was, months ago, and it's called How to Write Unmaintainable Code. And <laughs> by a guy called Rody Green. There's a link to it in the show notes. It's a joke, right? It's a joke essay. But I mean, geez, it's long. But it is so funny. And the funny thing is, if, you ha if you've if you got time to read it, it's actually got some really great advice in there. <laughs> I mean, it's it's framed as a joke, right? He's, do right. this if you want to make you make yourself indispensable because no one else will be able to understand your code. And you read through it and there's just so much really good advice. It's like, well, and, and every now and then and there, I would, now and then and there, I would, I'd cringe and I'm like, oh, I used to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no. Anyway, so uh, I recommend reading that one. It's really quite, is really quite, um, quite funny, and um, you can learn some lessons about what not to do, and by, you know, obviously through inversion, what therefore you should do. And right. the other thing that, that uh, if you do any kind of research on this specific topic, is the internet is absolutely swimming with advice on how to write good code. Geez, it was just similar to the whole coffee thing. You know, everyone thinks they know the best way. But anyway, there's lots of tips and tricks. But, you know, let, let's face it. The problem with the, that is that the internet was put together by programmers for the most part. So, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, that's why there's so much of it out there. But anyway, so we'll just focus on our opinion and, and frame it that way, I guess. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, code commenting, code commenting. <sighs> so, code comments for me are meant to augment the code such that they improve its overall readability by mentioning details that you can't you can't really capture in the code itself. How do you th- what do you think of that kind of definition? I I agree. Um, I'd have to see an example. <laughs> so, I mean, there's two types of comments. There's comments that, that point out something tr- particularly tricky that's going to go on. And then there's comments that I use that sort of tell a story. Right. Um, and so when I say tell a story, I say, let's say a function, I don't know what it does. It collects something, it sorts them, and it spits out a, a, like a fixed up list. Uh, so in the first half, the first third of the function, I'll, I'll put a comment saying, now we're going to collect all of the objects that match blah, you know, and then we'll do the for loop. And I know modern languages have much better ways of doing this, but stick with, bear with me. Um, we'll do the for loop and we'll collect all of the objects that match a certain predicate into, into the new array. Um, and so the, the first comment will say, okay, we're going to collect all the items and it'll end with an ellipsis, like dot, dot, dot. Then after we've done that, when we get to the next section of code, uh, I'll put a new comment and I'll start it with an ellipsis and say, and after having done that, we will now sort them all, dot, 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 and then I do the code for sorting them all. And then in the final thing, it'll be like, and now we repackage them into X format. Like, so it would end with, it would start with dot, 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 and then repackage all the objects into format Y, period. So you could read, like, if you, if you look at the function, you could read the comments with the ellipses joining them together, and it tells you the story of what's going to happen. Um, and from there, hopefully, the, the blocks of code that you're describing are atomic enough and basic enough that once you've been given the rough description, you can see how they you can see how they work. And the reason I like that kind of story, kind of commenting, is that um, even if you change the particulars of the way any block of code is going to work, um, the top level comment will still be valid. You're still going to be collecting them. Yes. Whether you do it with a for in loop or you, you iterate with an enumerator or do something else, the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish is at least labeled at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, I don't do that for every method or function because basically most methods should just be that in the first place. But if you do have like a complicated series of operations that are going to happen in one method, that's generally the approach I take. No, I absolutely agree, and and I try and do something uh, very relatively similar to that. And I guess I, I suppose just to to extend that, the things that I um the things that I don't like seeing in comments are things such as a code comment. I don't think a code comment should be the English version of the code verbatim. You know? No, that's horrible. No, I know. There's, yeah, it's the so, worst. And I've seen this. I've seen this. You know, programmers will say, "I've got." It's always the younger ones. Well, actually, not always. I've had a couple of older ones that do it. Anyway, so count plus plus. And then the comment after it is, in English, <laughs> variable count is incremented by one. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That's so helpful. Yeah. And I can't put yeah. more sarcasm into that. I mean, it's worthless yeah. on pretty much every level because the audience you're yeah. writing for I mean- are programmers. Yeah, by the end of CompSci 101 or CompSci, whatever, whatever language course. Mm. The first one you do it, if you can't recognize like a, a counter being incremented, you've got problems. <laughs> yeah, you've got major problems. Yeah. So no, uh, tell a, tell a story. You know, for me, it comes in very handy. Um, um, 
when doing graphics processing. Mm-hmm. Like I'll take an image, I'll invert the image, I'll translate it, uh, and then remap it with a different color, and then transform it into something else, like scale it up or something. Yeah. Um, now, if you just write that out with pure graphics code, it's kind of inscrutable. Because mm. graphics code is like very terse, right? It's You yeah. have like GL bitmap do this, or flip a coordinate, or find transform this. So if you don't have a story, like a basic premise of what the code's supposed to do, it becomes hard to understand it. Yes. Yeah, it's it's uh it's very analogous to the PLC code that I write sometimes. If you've got so if I create a block that's a queuing function, for example, then uh, I'll write that most likely in um, structured text uh, STL. And when you're doing that, obviously, well, not obviously, but yeah, you'll have you know load address load address register one, load address two, you know, um, tack. I'm I'm talking in Siemens talk at the moment, but you know, you have a whole yeah. list of commands, and unless you've got in your head exactly what data's in what register going where and multiplying, dividing by what, you'll lose complete track of what the hell you're doing. And that, right. that, that comment, that story is absolutely crucial. Otherwise, you'll look at that code in six months' time and think, what the heck is that there for? Yeah. So, cool. So, yeah. And so, I, 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 from my point of view, I, I find the comments to be most useful at the beginning uh, just to, to lay out the basic function and, and that's it. And uh, the obvious yeah. ones are, I also... I'm a great believer in embedding author and revision history um, in the header. I know that that's a contentious one, <laughs> actually. What are your thoughts on it, that? In the in the header, yeah, yeah. I, so personally, I I'm I like headers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of languages don't use them, and yeah. people say that they're an anachronism, and modern languages shouldn't have them. Yeah, yeah. I find headers to be uh, compiler check documentation, as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the author and the, the, the date at the top is fine. Uh, I mean, it gets put there automatically by pretty much all the tools, so that's fine. Uh, it used to be invaluable. Uh, these days with Git stuff, I think people can say it's not a big deal. Yeah, but this is that this is that's, that's you hit it exactly. My problem though is that yeah. if you've got an external tool that's managing this, that's fine so long as you're using that external tool. Exactly. So as soon as you stop using that tool, you've lost all of that revision data. You've lost all of that information. Yep. So then, what? It's kind of analogous to I want to use um, r- rich text and Markdown versus I'm going to use Microsoft Word. You know what right. I mean? Because yeah. because once you yeah yeah. Well, I mean, if you lose your Git repository, if you for whatever reason you have to check everything, you move from Git to Super Git. Like it, then it's not compatible somehow. Whatever the next thing is, you know. So yeah. you have to import your repository, and for whatever reason, it doesn't can't import all of the code changes. You've just lost all of that data, right? Like you have no idea who initially wrote the file, or when, or even under what circumstances, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, and for exactly that reason, that's why I I will embed author and revision history. Uh, yeah. When you cut a revision and what comments you make is another discussion, but you know, uh, well, is yeah. it? No, I don't know. Do you, keep, it isn't. do you keep do you keep it rolling as a log in the top of the header? That used to be pretty common practice. I okay. I tend to keep it rolling between major revisions. So if I've got something that's released, it's one point and I'm doing iteration on that. You know, in the simulator, then I'll 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 rev- I'll keep one one point. 1.01, and and all that revision history. But as soon as I go to 2.0, it's a clean slate. Right. That's what yeah, I because yeah. yeah, otherwise, you know, because sometimes I'll be iterating on these things, you know, a dozen times 
just true. So, yeah. and if I did that for every revision, then I'd have a, an enormous lot, a lot of comments. And uh, yeah, it is also backed up. So what I'll do at the end of every day is I'll you know zip and back it up. But that's a manual thing. And yeah, the pro- one of the things that I hate about PLC software is that it's not, it doesn't support uh, version control tools like Git or Subversion very much, if at all. It's all like a continuous block. It's like it's like you're working on a Word document. You know, you can't just save a yeah, paragraph okay. or a sentence, yeah. which you know really sucks, and it makes yeah. working on larger scale projects difficult. Okay, well, that's a great reason to do what you're doing. Yeah, which is keep a log in the header. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, even even in you know even in OO code that I've written, I still do it. Maybe it's just force of habit, but I still think it's the right thing to do. But well, we, it can't hurt, right? So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be useful someday. Like, well, what did I change in between this and this? And it's like, okay, go straight to that point in the code and you figured out, oh, okay, right, I screwed that up. It's usually why you go back. That's usually why I go back. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, there, there is something though. I, I hear that uh, the expression, and I actually sort of expounded this there for a few years, is the, the concept that well-written code doesn't need any comments or hardly any comments. It's like code should be self-documenting. I believe that to a certain extent. Uh, I think, yeah, I th- I I, so do I. I think it's an idealistic viewpoint, you know? Yes, yes. Like yeah, that, that, that can be the goal, but it's okay if you don't get there. It's okay to still have some comments in there. I of course, yeah. I mean, that's why that's why I like uh, the Cocoa Frameworks and, and Objective-C. Uh, yeah. So it is very expressive. Like it reads like a, a sentence. Uh, you have, you know, the target of the action, the method, the message, and any parameters that are coming. Like it, it's, it reads like an English sentence. Yeah. So and so do this with that. Like it, it's. We've got. We'll, we'll talk. It, about, yeah. I, I, I actually yeah. quite like it too. When I first, um, when I first got it, I got into my my brain into the Apple way of thinking, um, <clears throat> with all their frameworks. You don't even after a while. You don't even look up the the name. You just start typing away what you think it's going to be, and nine times out of ten. It just yeah. pops up in autocomplete, and you're like, "Yep, I knew it'd be something like, you know." Yeah, create. half the time you can just you yeah. can guess it anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's it, and that's that's beautiful. It's beautifully consistent. It's yeah. Anyway, all right. I'm gonna I'm, yeah. I'm gonna stop gushing about it just for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I mean that that doesn't obviate the need for comments, of course, uh, no. but it does mean that I think you get to do more of the storytelling comments than the low level particular comments, right? Absolutely. Especially with especially with named parameters in Objective C and now I guess Swift and I mean Ruby and other stuff does it. But mm-hmm. you know, named parameters helps a lot in terms of helping to document your code because you don't have to go look them up all the time. No, exactly right. So Okay. Um I also had this other thing years ago, uh, when I was working in the reliability group at uh, at Nortel when we were looking at software reliability. And one of the metrics that was thrown around for a while, and I think it still is in some circles, which depresses me, but still, is uh, comments per K-lock. Um, thousand lines. <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to say K-lock in there. <laughs> <laughs> Am I showing my age? But I don't know. Um, anyway, look, the thing is that I just, from from my point of view, adding comments does absolutely nothing to make your code run better. You know, that's it. Bad code's bad code. Yeah. No matter how many comments you have. So, I mean, because we did this. Wait, we should. We, uh, so, K lock is uh, thousands of lines of code. Yes. By the way, if yeah. anybody doesn't yeah. pick that up. Yeah. K L O C, yeah. Because yeah. for, for yeah. a while there, I, when they started throwing it around in meetings, 
You, you ever been in that situation where you got a bunch of people in the room that have been in an organization for a while, they're throwing around every acronym under the sun and you're like, what did, what did you just say? I just had a, I just had a client that is in a, a big retail operation. Yeah. And holy moly, do they have a lot of acting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nortel was so yeah. bad that they had the little book of acronyms. I kid you not. It was literally this little thing. Nope. It, it was, oh, I don't know. They, to... These guys have a, like an internal wiki to, to look up all the, the acronyms. And that's, of course, yeah. Uh, and honestly, yeah, that's that's the modern equivalent. Back then, yeah. there, there was no yeah. wiki, but anyway. Oh, dear. Anyway, all right, cool. Cool. So, yeah, oh, one, one more, two more things about co- um, code comments, and I think we've probably done that to death. And that is um, the other problem I have with too many code comments that are specific. This is the specific code comments is that you tend to get a divergence. And you sort of alluded to this earlier on, is that yeah, it doesn't matter how you choose to iterate. You were talking about enumeration versus you know loops and blah, blah, blah. That point there is that, well, if I'm going to be really specific about what this, this code does and I'm going to replicate some of that in my comments, then as you develop the code, what tends to happen is you'll, you'll, you'll be told um, there's a bug in this object, go fix it. And you're like, right, looking at the clock, it's like five minutes to five in the afternoon. No, this is if you've got a job, job, right? You know, but I mean, hey, let, let, let's say that at five o'clock you go and got to go and watch your daughter playing, you know, hockey or whatever, right? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a homeworking equivalent, but yeah, yeah. whatever. Point is, you got a deadline, so you get in there, you check out the, you, you go through and you check, fix the code. Test, yeah, 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 good, great. Check back in. Go. Did you remember to update your comments? No. And this is what yeah. happens, right? So then you get this divergence of what's in the code and what's in the comments and. And then the poor bugger that's reading the code is then you've just doubled the difficulty because they'll read the comment thinking that's going to help them understand it, but it's not. It's just confusing. Yeah, yeah to lie. Yeah. It's like, well... It's just, you just totally misled. Yeah, like, thanks. Bad. Thanks for leaving me that inaccurate comment, really. Anyway. So those small kind of comments are really good for when you do something insane. Uh, yeah. Like... In the Doom or the Quake engines, there's a lot of weird math tricks that have to do with the way integers work on the computer, and you can divide by a certain magic number and then shift by one, and it'll do some, it'll figure out the square root or something. Like there's always some yeah. weird trick. Um, explaining what you're going to do with that, very good, uh, because that's completely non-obvious. Uh, but explaining what you're doing in in the Munitia uh when the implementation can change drastically is i i think not only is it a waste of time i think it's it's not just a waste of your time to write it it's a waste of everybody else's time who comes and reads it and is just led down the garden path yeah exactly right exactly so the last thing about commenting that i want to talk about is dead code and yeah yeah yeah. you know what i mean when i'm talking about dead code right yeah, I'm bad for this, but yeah. Oh, hey, so am I. So, okay, so when I'm iterating my code, what I tend to do is I will take a block of code that sort of does what I want it to do, and then I'll copy, paste, comment out. And that's my way of sort of like, I'll just park that to one side. And then I'll iterate, iterate, and oh, now it's working, that's great. And then I'll delete out that dead code that I commented out. At least that's right. that's what I try to do. Um Often when I'm going to, when I'm done, like I'm totally done with something, I'm happy as I'll go through and I'll do a cleansing or purification, purify my code and just go through and strip out anything that's the dead code because the dead code sort of creates that confusion for programmers and you, even for yourself going back over it. You know, 
was this commented out for why was that left in there was that part of an experiment or is it a branch that you kind of were chiseling away at you're going to come back to or or what why the hell is it there so so if i come well if i comment a block of code out often it's for testing something hmm. like i'm like okay i want to get rid of this chunk and see what happens uh but if and I, i'm 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 getting much better with this, but uh, it used to be pretty bad because, uh, you know, versioning systems weren't what they, they are today. Uh, so I'd comment out a chunk of code that I may want to come back to. Like I may have a totally different implementation of a function mm -hmm. or two sections of a function. Um, generally, what I try to do when I do that is put a comment on top of the commented out code saying exactly why it's commented out. Uh, so that when I can come back to it in the future, I'd know what's going on. And then every now and then I try to do a cleanse, you know. Yeah, that's it. These days I'm relying a lot more on source control and just being able to go back in time and find... The tools Because I don't want to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I I mean, what happens is I don't have something that's working now and then I'm like, oh, I can try this different approach that's going to be faster or whatever, more efficient, whatever, whatever thing I'm particularly trying to optimize. And then ditch a bunch of old code and then find out that the new one is kind of broken in some way and have to reintroduce something from the old one mm -hmm. and not have it to hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And without version control or proper version control, that is a huge pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you just ended up with a bunch of dead code. Uh, these days it's easier to go back and see what revisions were made and just pull the right stuff forward again. Yeah, that's true. As I was saying, yeah, the, the tools have come a long way and i guess some of some of the way that i program is force of habit and that's and i'm and not moving with the with the times and using some of the tools that are available so I, I acknowledge that but even with those tools dead code is something that i still come across and you know i mean the other uh, the other form of dead code which is you know far more subtle is uh the objects with a bunch of methods that are never called and you're forever wondering yep. you know do I need, is this part of the framework or isn't it? What will, you know, because you'll, I remember there was two similarly named objects that I was working on and I even got confused. This is you know, years ago and I even got confused. I'm like, okay, so which one was the one I was working on and which is the one that I left for dead? Right. So before we go on any further, I think uh, we might just take a quick break to talk about our first sponsor, which is uh, Solver. And that's a calculation app by Aqualia for both the Mac and iOS. It's great, by the way. I use it every day. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Once you start using it, it's like, yep. how did I not... I mean, I, I've just given up. I, there are a whole bunch of things I used to do through Google search and I just do them through Solver because it's just so much quicker. No, it's one of those apps I'm jealous of because I'm like, oh, man, I wish I'd thought of this. Yeah, I know. So, okay. All right. So, I'm careful to call Solver a calculation app because it's more than a calculator and it's quicker and easier to use in a spreadsheet. Yeah, you just start typing away and in real time, the answers will show up in the right-hand pane. So, let's say you want to, let's say you add two numbers, but one's in hexadecimal and one's in decimal. Well, you know, type 0xff plus 10 and there's your answer. And you can have it in whichever you like. So, you can have... It's it's just that easy. Converting currencies. Okay, so I got 10 euros plus 10 US dollars in AUD for Australian dollars. Boom, you get the answer in Australian dollars. It does all the currency conversion, gets the rates and so on. It's just magic. So uh, crazy things. If there's if you want to do crazy things, you can. Yeah, like if you want to know how many minutes you've been alive, 
Okay, that's a crazy one. Try 38 years, two, two weeks as minutes, and it turns out that I've been alive 20,006,229 minutes or so. Something like that. Anyway, yay. Uh, sometime, sometimes, well, something I use it for for uh, pragmatic is the conversions between Celsius and Fahrenheit. So if you type in 120F in C, it'll give you that in Celsius. Boom, done. It's just, it's just that easy. And that's just a handful of examples, you know, but you type them in as you would think them and, and you get an instant result. You can link different results together easily to create more complicated calculations. You can share your working and your results. The list goes on and on. It is awesome. So anyway, if you're not convinced, then why don't you go to the URL in the show notes and check out the Mac version. It has a 10-day smart trial, meaning you only pay for the days that you actively use it for. So that's 10 days of total usage time. So for me, I used the trial for three days and I loved it so much I just bought it. It was just that good. So Solver is available through the Mac App Store and the iOS App Store. And there are links to the apps from Aqualia's website. If you use the URL in the show notes, it'll help out the show. So please use that URL in the show notes uh, to learn more about this helpful little app. So thank you to Aqualia with their great app Solver for sponsoring Pragmatic. Highly recommend it. And they're not paying me a dime. No. <laughs> it's, just, it's a great app. It, it really is a great app. Yeah, it's like I said before, it's it's one of those ones that once you start using it, you're like, how did I not, how did I not use this for forever? Because it's just that good. Anyway. Right. Okay. So, um, it's related to commenting, but it's not commenting. It's variable naming. So, we've got to talk about this. And mm-hmm. in my parlance... For example, in PLC land, uh, they're referred to as symbols or symbolics. But, you know, same diff kind of thing, right? So, I think that the overarching rule with with naming is verbosity is good within reason. I think that if your variables end up being 150 plus characters long, you're really writing a sentence. You probably need to work on that and shorten it a bit. But, you know, yeah, yeah. it's got to fit in a tweet. (laughs) <laughs> that's the new that's the new meters measuring stick is it yeah oh dear it used to be it used to be that they had to be less than like what eight characters mm-hmm. now it's like yeah your variable names go over a tweet length that, that variable names method names may go a bit longer mm. maybe in objective c even that's really pushing it yeah well i i think it's yeah well we'll put them in the same bucket why not methods variables you know why not i mean it's just 140 um, characters is a good guideline right yeah, yeah, but well, if only because uh, a variable name sh- is going to be describing one thing, while a method name is going to be s- describing a process, and a process is by its nature more complicated than one thing. Right? Okay, yeah, well, sh- okay. So let's say you got a um, you've yeah. got a method that's uh, you know, add number, you know, with number, from number, you know, whatever. It, yeah, oh, okay, that's true. That'll be well. Good. You know, it's like connect connect to network X using uh, radio Y. Yeah. On a frequency Z, like yeah. okay. you can get like pretty long. Yeah, I suppose that's, that. yeah. No, that's okay. Fair enough. So yeah. definitely watch the the verbosity, but but it's okay to be verbose because that's what the tools are there for. There's no yeah. there's no prize for having a short uh, variable name. And one of the things that I've 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 been frustrated with for years is knowing how good the development tools are. For example, uh, with Xcode. And then going into PLC land and dealing with the fact that you're still restricted to stupid things like 
uh, 24, 32 characters, you know, for a symbol name. And it's, mm. what century is this really, guys? And this is the thing that really annoys me is that, you know, the state of the art of software development in PLC land is abysmal. So, compared to what else is out there. So, I live in hope that someday they will step up and realize that, yeah, it would be handy to have more than 24 characters. For a- is there a reason for that? Like, they just don't invest in the compile technology or it's just... I don't. Honestly, there's no pressure know. to. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I know I can speak to one product because I know the answer for one product, and one product is called Cytect, and or, or as it's more affectionately known, Shytect. Um, it's uh, <laughs> anyway, it's built on DB4, and every time you change the column width in uh, in DB4, you have to change the way it's compiled because everything is all based yeah. on fixed width columns and it's just ridiculously old no there's no link list there's none of that stuff so when they change it and add more characters then it increases the size of the database file for the variable list and you know that then causes a backwards compatibility problem so yeah every so many years like every four or five years they've said okay well we've extended it now to 32 characters thumbs up and i'm like really only 32? Yeah. Goodness me. Well, I guess if they just, if they went to 128, then everything would balloon, right? You've got very little limited RAM, so. Yeah, well, but the problem is the symbolics, for example, in a Siemens PLC aren't stored in the PLC's memory. And, you know, it's stored in an offline file. So you just download the raw code. And what you see on the front end is that it overlays the symbolics over the top so that it's human readable. So in that case, there's no, there's no, there's no advantage, disadvantage. And with SciTech, that's SCADA. Again, yeah, it's sitting on the computer, and yeah, I've got a five. You know, oh, that's weird. Terabyte hard drive. Yeah, it's it's BS. So these symbolics never get onto the device. No, well, not not all PLCs are like that. Some PLCs sure. they do. They actually download the entire project to the memory, and some PLCs will have it segregated. So you'll have like a program memory, and you'll have data memory. So you download. You're literally doing a split download. You're downloading compiled code to the run to the to the actual uh, live program memory, and you're downloading a copy of the project for archival purposes and retrieval later that has everything in it. Okay. So depends on the PLC, but oh, still. Oh wait, that's cool. So you could you could pull out the entire source code for the for the programmable bit. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's that's cool because well, it goes along with like the physical object, right? Like you mm-hmm, can. That's right. One of the things that sucks, though, is... It's cool. That's a good idea. It is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Not all PLCs do it. But, you know, for example, uh, some PLCs, um, I think uh, the Quantums or the Premiums, I think the Schneiders, I'm trying to remember. It's been a while. But if you you, you don't have to have a memory card for some of these, it's optional. And if you don't have the memory card, then you don't download the entire project to it. uh, Mm -hmm. And then you just download the compiled raw code. At which point then, if you ever want to upload it, you'll upload it, but you'll just get raw memory addresses and raw function calls. And you'll have like, what the heck is FB165 doing with M7.3? Oh, good. Right. Yeah, it's it's And believe me, that's the worst kind of call out to get. So you get a call out, at, at, and I haven't done this for years, but I used to get these sorts of call outs where the machine stopped working. It's two in the morning. You know, they're losing thousands of dollars an hour. And they're like, right, fix it. And you're looking at this machine. You've never seen it before. You log in on your laptop and there's no backup of the code. You upload it and you're looking at this thing and it's like, right, I'm staring at raw machine code. Now I have to figure out why the machine isn't running. Oh, that's where daddy drinks. Yeah, damn right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm out of that game at the moment. But I'll tell you what, it was a certain buzz doing that, I will admit. But um, anyway. 
Yeah. That was a while ago. Okay, I, I digress. I digress. So I need to do another. I uh, need to do an episode just about PLC programming and all that stuff. I'll get to it someday. But anyway, okay. So I think embedding the variable type into the variable name is sort of a pseudo common practice. Would you say? Yeah, like B for Hungarian, well I'm Hungarian notation, right? Um, not familiar with that terminology. I have to put my hand up. I'm sorry. Okay, so. Um, I forget the name of the guy, but he was, he was a dude at Microsoft, uh, back in the eighties or early nineties. And he popularized this way of naming variables, which, um, included type information at the beginning. So if you had like a, a window handle, it would be H like underscore, uh, not underscore, lowercase H W N D and then a capital which would start off your, your window name. So you'd have hwind main window. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I think I do, yeah. Or like, so maybe more familiar would be like, if you have a, like an unsigned int, it, it might be under, like lowercase u, i, and yep. then a count of indexes or something, yep, yep, count yep. of people. Yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah, yeah. That's, that is exactly what, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So there you go, I learned something new for the day. There you go, cool. They didn't know that, yeah. that I actually had a name. I think that. he created it, which is, but like, Whatever, it could be something else. One of those things that his name's been attached to it ever since sort of thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, the thing is, I was looking at this recently on a project that I'm currently working on and I was reviewing someone else's code. And one of the problems that they've had is the coding standards available. Um, you know, read from that comment what you will. But anyhow, what they did is if you're going to do that, do not mix your naming schemes, please. So what they did... Yeah is they said, okay, well, we're going to have B for Boolean, I for integer. Okay, so far, so good, shrug, whatever. And then they're going to say, we're going to have S for set point and P for process value. But they're going to put it in the same character position as in the first character. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, so if I've got a set point that's an integer, which way around is it? Is it IS or is it SI? And they're like, well... Because not every variable is going to be a set point. Not every variable is going to be a process variable, process value. So, what they've done is they essentially blended the two naming schemes together. So, it should be consistent. Like the first character, if you're going to do this kind of abbreviation thing, which I guess is okay up to a point, then, sure. you know... Well, you need, an, you need an order of precedence, right? Yeah, exactly. And they, they hadn't defined it. And I'm just, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, think it through is, I guess, my advice if you're going to do that sort of thing. Because I think that there's a amount of, there's a diminishing return up to a certain point. Because some some languages that are what's the expression heavily typed or they are so, so a language like in a lot of instances you can read the variable in context and figure out what it is. And honestly, mm-hmm. I find sometimes the abbreviation concept to be a little bit redundant. And I try not to do it myself. I have done it to be consistent usually with other people's code, but it's not really, sure. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I, I know why people do it. But anyway, anyway, so. I hate it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. I think, I think it's a, I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. I, I think in some languages, maybe it makes sense. Maybe like, maybe more for your stuff. Um, potentially. Yeah. But that's better. In higher level languages. No, I don't think it makes sense. I think, um, I think a variable name should describe what the variable it represents. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is in a float or a double, that may change over the course of the uh, development. Oh, right? yeah, sure. Absolutely. 
like let's say you've got a I don't know a location in world mm-hmm. in a float, and then you discover that floats don't can't accurately represent the size maps that you want, so you move up to doubles. Yeah. Um, you really don't want to go and have to rename every single variable everywhere. <laughs> no. Because no. that would be really annoying. And search, um, search and replace will uh, is the blunt hammer that will wipe out otherwise working code. Yeah. So then I get what you do in C or something would be like you type def something to be, I don't know, like CG coordinate float. Yep. But then what do you prefix in front of all of your variables? Like you put coordinate, so you've got C O R D like Yeah. It just gets silly fast and it's a, just a bunch of line noise and it gets annoying. And again the tool should be doing this for you anyway. Like the they they should be helping you out with this kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I feel the same way with like um, a lot of programmers, and this is even inherent in Objective C now. But a lot of programmers in C plus plus at least would put M in front of the member uh, variables of their classes. Yeah. So yeah. that when so that when they were being inter when they were being operated upon inside uh, methods, you could tell if a member variable was being messed with or. Uh, um, something defined locally, like a parameter or something being defined locally. Um, Objective-C has this kind of built in now where if you don't specifically synthesize a property, you automatically get underscore property name, which is how you, you know that you're messing with something directly. Um, I'm not a fan of that. I really don't like the M prefixing stuff. Uh, underscore a little less so because I usually just do self dot, so it's less of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but the M stuff just reads like line noise, and I, I honestly feel that what we're we're kind of abusing code readability. Yeah, yeah, because the, if you because the tools it, aren't good enough, right? Like the tools should be color highlighting and all of that, or telling you exactly what you're doing wrong, or pointing out mistakes, right? Yeah, well, exactly. So I, I guess from what, what I'm, what what bugs me about the the practice is that if people do it. They'll use like M M for a method, like you say I for integer, B for boolean, blah blah blah, and it's it's sort of that implicit. Then they'll then they'll have the rest of the variable name or method name in in full, fully described in text. So what is it exactly yeah. about the type that needs to be abbreviated that makes that different and special and okay? You know, right. if you're gonna write boolean, write boolean. You know, it's a higher level yeah. language. You know, if you're really going to go down that road, why do it? I mean, in six to 12 months time, let's say you've come up with a naming convention and that naming convention is, you know, whatever it is. And that naming convention is um, Q short for qubit. I don't know, whatever. Are mm-hmm. you really going to remember in 12 months time what the heck the Q stood for? Because I'm going to bet you're not, unless it's something no. that you it's all your code. And you, you know, again, you're not working in a team, you're in isolation and you come up with your own naming thing just because you can and that's just right. yeah. Anyway, cool. Yeah. So I mean, I, again, if I operate in anybody else's code base, I respect their 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 style. Yeah. Uh, just for my own, and and as a sort of a philosophical point, like, I don't like mixing up type information with the name of the variable. And like you're saying, well, like I was saying before with the with the coordinate thing, I would rather put. Um, uh, unit coordinate, then C O R D unit. Yes, you know, like yeah. the absolutely. Just write it out. Yeah, another thing. Absolutely, yeah. another thing about writing it out too is the separation of names. So, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. please. Go, uh, we said before, don't do not use underscores. Um, that just looks so horribly horrible. But uh, well, okay, I have a different opinion on that. All right. Oh wait, so in Objective C methods, yeah, don't do that for sure. Yeah. Okay. But what about in variable names? So you're happy with them with under? So if I want to have variable names, okay. This underscore is underscore my <laughs> underscore count. Well, okay. So here's one thing I did years ago, and I think it worked pretty well. Uh, one of my one of the first the first game engine I was lead on actually. Um, anything that you shouldn't be calling unless you knew exactly what the hell you were doing would be written in sort of old school underscore style, like all lower caps, all lowercase, um, underscores. Uh, structs would be so and so, like it would be like uh, I don't know, vec three underscore t, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and on top of that would be something that looked a lot more like uh, what. Uh, What's it called? Not core graphics. Um, wow, core foundation. Mm -hmm. Like a very core foundation looking API on top of that. Um, and the core foundation API could call into this lower level stuff as needed to get stuff done. But if you were just a general programmer, you would only be operating at the, the core foundation level. And the reason I did this and the reason I think it worked out really well is that it was basically impossible to visually like you, you had a very visual cue that you were dropping down to a low level. And if you knew, if you were messing with one at, at some other level, you knew you were screwing up. Certainly if you were in one of these, when, if, you, if, if you're writing a function, because it was all functions back then. Yep. Um, if you're writing a function that called anything that was all caps, like, or that did, that looked like a, um, uh, a core foundation function, mm -hmm. you you were screwing up because you were you were visibly going up the stack in terms of uh, um, uh, abstraction. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like the yes. so the underscore one was like a visible way of being like this is the lowest level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. If you're calling this from on top, okay, maybe you've got a good reason, but if you're calling the other way the other way around, you're you're screwed. Like don't. Yeah, definitely don't do that. Um, yeah, okay. Well, I, yeah, I can. Yeah, that's fair enough. So as long as they're consistent, like, and these were functions. Keep in mind, I would never do that with Objective C code. No, because that is you write Objective C code properly. Like, it's it's got its own culture and okay. language. So, so that's that's and that's fair enough use of of an underscore. That that's cool. But I guess what I was one of the things that I was sort of getting at is that it's okay to. For the for the want of a better way of saying it, sentencifying, and that's actually I don't pretty sure that's actually not a word, but anyway, yeah. when you when you're making your variable name into a sentence of sorts to help describe it, you know, just using capital letters to 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 break apart the words, because there's nothing more frustrating to me than looking for a jumble of letters as a variable name, yeah, you know, irrespective of whether there's an underscore at the beginning or not to denote its level in the code, but I guess. More so about. Oh wait, wait, wait! No, I'm sorry. I think we misunderstand each other. Oh, sorry. When I was say you, when I was saying um, underscore. In camel case, you use a capital letter to break apart. The words. Right. In the case I was talking about, I would use an underscore. Like everything would be lowercase, and I would use an underscore to break apart the words. Oh, okay. I'm apologizing. Okay. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize. But... <laughs> No, it's just because it's hard for me to communicate, right? Like, yeah, you're right. This is actually tougher than I thought it would be to talk about. Um, but yeah, I, honestly, 
Can I just put my hand up and say I still wouldn't write like that? But that's okay. It's just maybe that's personal preference. But no, so I wouldn't. I, I don't either. Uh, that's why it was visibly. The, it's like okay. Yeah. It's like the most Unixy levelly kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's got a very Fortran sort of feel to it. But anyway, I. I sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess what I'm railing against is all lowercase all run together. Like for me, oh, that's yeah, that's the worst. Please, I mean, God, don't do that. That's, uh, it's illegible. Yeah. yeah, and and I know this is tangentially related, and it's the wrong show for that. But still, um, when when you're doing a hashtag on Twitter, try and do it there too. <laughs> take right. your take take your learnings from pro- from programming and 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 breaking that up by using capitalization, and apply this to your your hashtagging exercises in your spare time. Uh, because there's nothing worse than, than reading a hashtag and you're trying to break out, okay, is that supposed to be an R, uh, like an A, or is that on yes. or if? Yeah, <sighs> yeah anyway. that's that's the worst. Oh, uh, Wave, Michael Johnson, uh, Pixar guy, had a good one the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, it was co-designing and co-signing. Yes. It's the same, it's the same, spelt the same way. Oh, yeah. Hey, cool. It's the exact same word. They mean two totally different things. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I love that. One's kind of fun and the other one is definitely, definitely not fun. So. Uh, no, no, no. That's right. Okay, cool. Well, before we go on, um, I'd just like to take a, a quick moment to talk about our second sponsor for this episode, and that is Space Nation. And uh, they make a neat Mac and iOS app for the iPhone and iPad called Hue Party. That's H-U-E Party. And Hue Party can control your LifeX or your Philips Hue bulbs. I thought it'd be uh, an interesting fit for the show, seeing as how LifeX have been a previous uh, a previous sponsor of the show, and uh, still f- um, follow up as well for this month. So, it's uh, free to try. It has many of the same features that you, you that you get out of the standard LifeX app, such as candle flicker, strobing, color change, based on the music playing through your device's microphone. Uh, but in addition, there's two interesting little twists this app has is if you tap and hold the Hue Party icon and shake your device, it turns the lights off. Uh, also, if you tap and hold the icon and turn your device in the air using the gyroscope and accelerometer, it changes the brightness setting of the bulb. I can only really test it on a LifeX bulb since I don't have any of the Philips Hue bulbs. Um, but Hue Party found my LifeX within five seconds and the rest was, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, the best part is it's a free app to try uh, on, on both of the app stores, the Mac App Store and the iOS App Store. So uh, try it out. And if it works well for you or if you have more than two light bulbs you want to control, uh, then the uh, $3.99 US uh, in-app purchase will unlock the unlimited lights to control in your network. So please visit this URL, Hue Party, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic on your mac and ios device and follow the links to the app store from there to help out the show you can search for, uh, for the app in the store but if you use that url in your browser of choice then that will that'll help the show out so thank you to space nation's hue party app for sponsoring pragmatic okay um i want to talk about something that um joel spolsky wrote about and he's written so much good stuff that's a rather a generic comment it's just hard to know where to start with this. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And this one was actually an, um, an article was written back in 2000. But the thing is, kind of like the Mythical Man Month, uh, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of, yeah. Anyway, geez, I love his stuff. Anyhow. He doesn't write so much anymore, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's doing great. Very smart guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. It comes back to... And this is now getting more into coding practice, but it's still still important. And that is perfecting functions or objects. 
at least that's I guess the title of, of what I sort of lead into this because yeah. when you write an object or a block, I'm I'm a firm believer that you should spend as much time on it as you can and then leave it alone. So perfect it as much as you can, then leave it alone. Try not to extend it too much. Don't refactor it too much because uh, you know you just you get buried with it. I mean, if you've been buried in code for weeks or months, or hopefully not months, you know your brain is like so connected with that code it'll make sense. But if you take a break and then you come back again, I found that you can never really quite get back to what the, the state that your brain was in when you wrote it. Have you ever found that? Uh, yes, very much so. I think that's one of my major problems with um, C plus plus actually. Yeah, is that I think well. There's so many tools available to it that I think it, I think some programmers begin to fetishize the writing of the code and how, um, not abstract, but how, how not, not even clever, but just how concise and, um, I guess smart it, it feels mm. to have written that code. Yeah. Um, I fear the same may be true of Swift because Swift does some of the same things. Right. Um, but no, I totally agree. Once you get, I mean, the purpose is to build a product, right? Yes. And I think you have to keep that in mind. So you write your, you know, you write your object to, to do what you needed to do. Yeah. Uh, and then move on and then write the next object. And if you have to come back to add some new functionality, then, then perfect. Um, I think what happens when you're starting out is that when you f write that object the first time, it's not good enough. It's like it's screwed up in some way. Sure. Uh, but with more experience, you get to write these things one off and they, they will have a design sensibility that will last throughout the lifetime of the project. You won't have to go back and change up a bunch of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, it's one of the it's this there's there's two effects you, that I see is the whole I'll just do enough to get it working and then I'll move on because I've got to get this thing out yeah and yeah you know, then there's the effect of well the block it you know, the function object it almost does what I need but I just need to do a little bit more so I'm just going to go inside and mess with it again six months later or something right and that's when I go oh, please don't do that. Because if you've put in all this effort and you've 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 done all your your test cases and it's as solid as you can make it, you move on and then you just leave it alone. Because yeah, you know, I just I find that that's where things really start. That's when you start to get crazy bugs. Is when you go in six months later and you, you just extend it just a little bit. I mean, and yeah. obviously, okay, this is not an this is I'm not don't mean this to sound. Jeez, uh, what's the word? As an either or choice. I'm not saying that you can't extend it. I'm just saying that. There's other ways of getting around it. Like you could either you could you could potentially clone the block, you could put a wrapper around it, you could pluck out certain features. I don't know. There's there's other ways of dealing with it. But mm -hmm. you know, and honestly, I just I'm just a great believer that once code has been written um, and dealt with, then it's best to leave it. And one of the one of the pull quotes I just from the article I've linked in the show notes by Joel Spolsky from 2000 was, uh, "It's harder to read code than it is to write it, and it doesn't matter." Who yeah. you are, that's just that's a reality. So once yeah. it's written, you yeah. Anyway, so no, so I totally agree with that. Um, I think that is one of the arguments in favor of test-driven development, though, is it that it gives you a bit of latitude in order to go back and make sure that you're not screwing anything up. True, absolutely. Um, 
So in theory, I'm a big proponent of test driven, driven, driven development in practice. Uh, <laughs> not many of my projects really lead themselves to it, or at least I haven't been able to figure out how. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those. Yeah. Sometimes I catch myself, um, talking to the junior engineers and saying, yeah, you need to test your code. You need to test your code. And then I'll quickly run in and write some code. And I'm like, I really need to test that. Hmm. Right. And you think, well, that the I rules- mean, automated testing, right? Yeah. 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 Where, where you can. I mean, obviously in my case, there's some tests I simply can't do automatically because of the nature of the SCADA and the, and the PLC software that I use is that they don't lend exactly. themselves to that. But, you know, yeah. If you have decent development tools, <sighs> sorry, that's kind of the bane of my profession. Really, is <laughs> the state of the software it just it, <laughs> it depresses me daily. But anyhow, okay. So once your once your code is out there, there's this, this this terminology I like to use called soak time, and I I don't know if because it's an engineering term. It actually yeah. comes, I think, more from. Uh, electrical engineering, isn't it? Well, yeah. The idea is, it's it's uh, if you've got a product uh, like a circuit board, we used to do this at Nortel. So we we're, when we're making the Metrocell BTS or any of our electronics products, is you put them into an oven, and you run them at a high yeah. temperature, and yeah. they call that a heat soak, and it's designed to accelerate any failure rates that you might have. Yeah. If you're really really so inclined, you would get a temperature cycling uh, oven such that it would ramp the temperature at a, pro- at a temperature profile and that would simulate the effect of the devices being in the field because, you know, there was for quite some time and even still now, there are lots of places where you don't have temperature and humidity controlled environments. So, you're putting these cars into a, a base station and it's out in the sticks. During the wintertime, it's it's quite cold. During the summertime, it's quite yeah. hot. You know, you've only oh, got- man, if you put something out here in Canada, <laughs> like we range from like minus 30 in the winter Celsius mm-hmm. to like plus 30 in the summer. Oh, yeah. Man, I felt it. That's- I was in Calgary, man. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> But, Pretty um, big range of temperatures, you know. It's yeah, massive, massive yeah. variation. But I mean, the daily one is just as bad. And I'm sort of treading on reliability engineering yeah. here. But you know, the idea is that you get temperature cycling, and what we, we are different temperature cycling. You get differential expansion rates, and that introduces fractures and blah 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 blah. Point is that heat soak is and soak time is a concept that I sort of ripped off from that. But I have heard it used in the context of software as well, and it's sort of used interchangeably with field time or real world use. Or what what term would you use? It's out there. It's in use. You know. What, what terminology would you typically use to describe that? Uh, well, automated unit testing. No, I mean, your code is out there in the field. It's been live in use by oh. customers for 12 months. What would you refer to that time as? Oh, uh, point release. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I'm going to- I don't know. This, How, is, this wait, is why I had to rip it off. the field for 12 months. There's no, I don't think there- I don't have a ready term for that. Okay. Soak so, time is great for me. Okay, yeah. cool. So, let, we're going to run with soak time. There you go. Um, I've just dragged that in because it works for me. And the idea is yeah. that it's out there. It's been soaked in real world use, but not physically wet. Anyhow, so <laughs> so once the code is out there in the world, it's been heavily used and exercised. And I guess that's the caveat, exercised. Okay. I, yeah. I love it when people say, oh, we've had 5,000 downloads of our of our app. Oh, but no one's yeah, used it. Doesn't it doesn't mean anything. No, no one's used it. <laughs> it's like, well, they've used it for five seconds and then it's crashed and they stopped using it. And it's been out there for six months, so it must be solid. No, no. I mean, actually exercising and using your code. Yeah. 
So hopefully at that point, the more bugs have been fixed because you'll be getting those reports back and it's like, okay, so it's crashing a lot less now and you know, it's solid and stable. My code base is nice and robust. So the longer the soak time, the longer the stress testing, the better your product is inevitably going to be, the better your code is inevitably going to be. And the longer that goes, the more it has to reinforce in your mind, don't mess with the code. Because it's, right. you know, the temptation is, oh, but it could be done so much better if, well, no, 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 don't do that. And another great pull quote from Joel's article is, when you start from scratch, there's absolutely no reason to believe that you're going to do a better job than you did the first time. And there seems to I, be- this- I, I'm like 99% of the way there with him. Yeah. In fact, that's how I, in reality, I probably totally agree with him. In theory, it's like if you wrote something five years ago and you come back to it, you could be like, yeah, that was, it probably could do better. I still don't think you should fix it, quote unquote, fix it. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Oh, like, sh- yeah, sure. But kind of just sums it up. So Yeah, exactly. I just, I find that the idea of people just say, oh, well, we're going to tweak this and make it better. And I'm thinking, A, is it broken? No. Okay. So um, there is no B. <laughs> well, so that's, I think that's um, a matter of what you're focusing on. I think the, the correct thing is to be focusing on the product or the, uh, the usefulness towards the customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Primarily. Yeah, fair enough. But I think some people see code and they're like, oh, I could do it better if I yep. rejiggered this algorithm. That's right. It's like, well, does that solve what problem? What real world problem is that solving for anybody? Mm. Because if the answer is none, then don't do it. If it's working now, all you're doing is potentially introducing bugs. That's it. You're not actually solving a problem with anybody. You're potentially creating them. Mm-hmm. And all of that time that you spent being fancy and then fixing being fancy is time that you haven't spent fixing other real problems that real people are facing. So I think it's a, it's a net loss except for maybe your ego that you made something fancier. Yeah, and the, the problem is that that's, that's that whole... The last bit of what you just said is there's a belief that you're going to do it better or fancier the yeah. second time around. And inevitably, I don't think that's necessarily true. Not all the time. Most, most of the time, I'd no. say it isn't. So, it's just well, that. Even then, even if you do, who cares? I mean, you st- yeah. if you haven't fixed any more problems, it, does it matter if it's fancier or not? Yeah. Like Someone once said, I've, uh, I wish I had the exact the person that said this, but um, uh, re- refactoring is a loss-leading exercise or something like that. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. To be clear, I'm not against refactoring when it's needed. Oh, sure, sure. You just have to identify the need rather than the the desire. Yeah, I mean, if you fu- those, those if, two being different, right? yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, if you fu- fundamentally messed up the structure of your object and you need to add a bunch of functionality, and there's simply no way to to do it any other way than to rewrite it and and refactor it to include that functionality, you know, okay, fine, that's fine. But honestly, yeah. that doesn't happen as often as you might as well. Once you've got code that's out there, I find it doesn't uh, that doesn't happen so much. So anyway, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so uh, I've got a few more points. Uh, Shoot, yeah. small ones. So grouping data into structures, and this may be you know if we're talking about object oriented code, and I keep saying object oriented because you know it just sounds cool, I guess. But whatever. Uh, grouping your data into structures is something that is a choice in a lot of you know PLC platforms, but. It just, for me, it makes finding data you're looking for much quicker and a lot more sensible rather than just having, you know, and there's, uh, how many how many people have written articles about, you know, global variables versus, you know, and global is evil. I think global is okay up to a point, uh, but you should do everything you can to minimize 
global and 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 pass around what you need and and group it because otherwise it's really hard to find what the hell you're looking for and i realized yeah. that i've just crossed about three or four different programming styles in the last five sentences so if that <laughs> you know i know that's kind of risky but um yeah thoughts comments um i i think that's almost inarguable uh yeah. structures are in terms of globals, I mean, that should be exceedingly rare. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Objective-C, all of the classes are effectively globals. Okay, that's one thing. Sure. Uh, the application is a global because, you know, guess what? You know, it's only one process running, so that just makes sense. Um, Grouping data into structures seems is is a no brainer as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I've been doing that since for you know since Pascal or for as long as you possibly can. Um, even before I could wrap my head around what an object was, I, I I thought structures were the most obvious way to go around getting things done. Um, is that really even up for debate anymore? Like, do people no, argue think, about that? I don't think yeah. it is. And I guess this is one of the other problems I had when I put this in the notes to, to talk about is that at what point is this just given an understood and we've been doing this for, for long enough mm -hmm. now that we just accept it? And yeah. you know, maybe that's just one of those and we should just move on. So, let's just... So, well, one book that I, that I wanted to bring up while we were chatting about this yeah. is like an old book uh, called Code Complete. Which, if you haven't read, is brilliant. I think I've got like three of them around the house somewhere. Okay. Um, it is a book by, oh my God, I'm going to blank on his name. It's not Charles Petzold. Um, hang on. I, I got to Google this now. I can't believe this. <laughs> Steve McConnell. Steve McConnell. I'm going to guess. I haven't got there yet. Yes, Steve McConnell. Brilliant guy. Good, good. Microsoft Press, 1993. Uh, this book is terrific. It's written in 1993, my dude. So, I mean, keep in mind that, uh, you know, it's, it may be a little bit outdated. The second edition's 2004. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit more modern. But it is a terrific book that lays out all of this kind of stuff. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's a chapter about exactly what you just talked about. Um, I highly recommend it to anybody. Uh, I got to put if my hand up just, and say I haven't read it, and I am now going to read it. So you, you really should. It's yeah. still worth your time. I yeah. mean, just yeah. skim through the. So if you go to the Wikipedia page, mm -hmm. right on the bottom, uh, there's an external link called Code Complete Checklists. If you just scan through that, it's literally asking most of the questions you're asking now. Cool. All right. Like you could you could look up structure and be like, and so and so for the checklist format is basically it's like. You're writing a structure. Have you thought about this, 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 and this? Mm -hmm. And if you can check off all of those boxes when having made that decision, the, that set of decisions, you can feel confident that you've got a pretty decent design. Yep. And you don't have to check all of the boxes. He's, it's just more of like a mental, like, you know, it's a mental model of looking at things. And if you don't, if you can't check a box, that doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that you've considered why you can't check that box. Mm -hmm. So it's a good way of thinking about stuff. And that covers um, 
uh, inheritance and uh, structures and, and globals and all kinds of stuff like that. It even covers commenting, which we talked about before. Cool. Yeah, I, and I mean, I will I will put this out there. This the, this this whole episode talking about you know all the different things that we think go into making uh, better code and and do's and don'ts and so on. It, this is not new. This has been well, a well covered topic and so on. But I hadn't covered it specifically on the show, and I thought it's definitely worth exploring. So from you know from the show's point of view, so um, it's just uh, I'm going to add that to the, my my reading list, and um, I will I will get to that, and I'll. Um, and I'll let you know what I think. It's actually a compellingly quick read. You'll really? probably okay. just tear through it. Yeah, it's, okay. it's well written. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so uh, a few more points that I had, and then I'll leave it open for any others that you wanted to quickly mention. And that is that um, breaking breaking the code down. So break it down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. Okay, so when you're about to write, and this is the thing, when you're about to write your 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 program, your code, whatever. Just take a little bit of time up front to map out roughly the objects or blocks, structures, functions that you're going to use. It doesn't have to be to the nth level of detail necessarily, but as the project gets bigger and you've got more and more people on it, for goodness sake, you absolutely have to do this. But it's still a very useful exercise if you're a one-person one show. Um, and, and on bigger projects as well, just write an interface spec so that people know what the hell to expect from your objects, from your from your functions and so on. Because if you're going to work on this object, they're going to work on that one. Yeah, you've got to know how the hell the messaging is going between them. You, you've got to define yeah. that. You just have to me, to. that's the value of a header file. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely. Because you put you get to put exactly what's public and you get to comment on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying the format in which you need to document it. I mean, in in my no, no. yeah, in my industry, <clears throat> we typically do it. Unfortunately, in a word document. <sighs> But un yeah, hey, whatever. I can't. I yeah, can't, whatever. I can't stop them from using that. But and this is not a word versus pages comment. This is a. I'm a great believer in. Well, why don't we just put it in the code, yeah. and distribute the framework and say, right, here's our framework of the code, and you go and figure it out from that. But never mind. That's fine. One day I'm going to win that argument. Uh, but never mind. So yeah. So yeah. Definitely break it down. Um, like MC Hammer. God. Uh, it's okay. So bring it up again. You know why not? Second time round, the joke is funnier. <sighs> anything? Anything else to add to that one guy? I love MC Hammer. <laughs> um, I no, I think that's good advice. Uh, <sighs> so for me, I think if I mean, I don't want to say I do the snaps all the time because that's far from the truth. But uh, once you've had a lot of experience you don't necessarily need to put in that much time up ahead because you know the general structure that you're going to do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, this kind of problem. Okay, here's here's what I'm going to do. And it's it's a common approach that's not just for me, but it's what I've learned from working on other projects that are similar to it. Um, so you don't necessarily need to write out like an object graph specifically. Uh, Certainly, you do when you to document it for other people. That's great. Um, but if you're using common patterns and common approaches, then uh, and you're not doing anything fancy pants, then you know you don't necessarily need to spend that much time up front. That said, you know, measure twice, cut once. Never hurt anybody. Yeah. So absolutely, definitely, right. definitely, definitely give it some thought. 
Yeah. Especially if, if you're unsure of how to approach a, sub, a, a problem, don't just go in gun blazing. It, it will not work. Yeah. If it's a problem you've seen before and you've, you've seen three or four different solutions and you've seen one of them or two of them be particularly successful while other two had failings, well, now you're better. You, you can cull a bunch of possibilities right off the beginning, right? Yeah, exactly. Precise uh, time. And that, that, yeah, that comes more close, better with time. But if you don't know how you're going to approach something, don't just start. Yeah. Exactly, and and well, and if you do do the thing where you build one to throw it away, because guess what, it's not going to be any good. Yeah, you may get it working, but you know, uh, you must have heard that expression, right? Like yep. you build the first one and then you throw it away because yes. it's garbage, and then you go do it the right way. Oh yeah. Well, that's you know that's that's the way of doing the first pass where you're just trying to figure everything out. Um, but it's the the nitty gritty way of doing it, right? Like mm -hmm. you build your doghouse and it's all screwed up, and then you're like, okay, well, this kind of sucks. So you got to take it apart and build up a, a new one, using everything that you've learned the first time. Yeah, exactly right. And, and something else that occurs to me when we're talking about this is that just because you do set out a path early on doesn't mean you're stuck with it. And if you, no, 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 yeah, if you, that's the worst. Yeah, oh yeah. No. And so do not make a rod for your own back in that sense. I mean, okay, that, that, that came out wrong. It's okay to make the rod for your back, but you can modify that rod as you go, if necessary. And the longer you wait to tweak it, the more a pain you will feel. So if you get in a few weeks into your development, let's say, and it's going to take you, you're working for three months on a bit of code on, on, on a project, and it comes out after a few weeks, you realize you need to extend this, this, and or, create, or change this object slightly or modify this and so on. You know, for goodness sake, do it sooner rather than later. Otherwise, you know, it's just so much more work and pain the longer you let it go. So, because I've I've noticed that there's a in larger companies there's a this this momentum effect whereby yeah. it's in the interface spec, so that's what you're going to get. And if you want to add things, the longer it goes, the harder it gets. And it's like, oh, oh geez, I wish someone had spoken up sooner. And you speak to the developer, yeah. and they're like, oh, well, I realized this weeks ago. Why didn't you say something? And like, oh, well, because yeah. The, uh, political reasons or whatever yeah, yeah. Oh, what's that what's that expression yeah politics what's that expression uh a foolish ingredient is a hobgoblin of a small mind <laughs> that's cool something like that yeah it basically just means like if you just if you're just being obediently foolishly like just if you're just being obedient in this case to to the plan yeah uh you're ultimately just being kind of a dummy like you, you need to you need to continuously adapt the plan to what you've been learning. It yep. doesn't mean you throw everything out, but if you're not being uh, uh, responsive, and I don't mean that in like technical terms, but I mean if you're not responding as an organization to what you've learned as you're building the project, uh, you're not helping yourself in any way. That's right, and a lot of that pressure comes from you know project managers that'll that'll look at well, I only care that you ship something on this date. And anything that requires going back sounds like a bad thing up front. But the funny thing is with software is that sometimes it can actually be a good thing. If you iterate early, yeah. it can save you time in the long run. And trying to explain yeah. that to someone in project management that doesn't understand software that thinks linearly is an exercise in endless frustration. So, yeah. you know. I've actually had a few good experiences with uh, project managers that have been trying to warn ahead of time that we need to make changes. Sure. Uh, and then the sort of the top person is reticent to do it, you know, so. Wow. So I, I don't want to just bash on any one 
like this kind of stuff can and i think that's worth pointing out is that this kind of what what's the quote i found the quote here a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds okay. love it cool um but this kind of foolish consistency can come from any part of the organization yeah anybody can stick their their feet in the mud and like refuse to change mm. or refuse to um realize that that things will need to change yeah exactly so you know it's not it often it's project managers because they're less close to the stuff but it doesn't have to be it could be a programmer who's got a particular bean as bonnet about taking a particular approach that's yeah. currently not working that's or a designer that is like he won't bend or she won't bend because it's like they're they're so enamored with the design that when it becomes impossible to actually implement they just won't yep they they, they won't give it up you know yeah so no, it's 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 a it's a fair point and i honestly I, I rag on project managers all the time uh, because usually yeah. they're the bane of my existence. But uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they do have it coming. Yeah, they, yeah, damn right. But the thing is that I say that and then in the next breath, I got to put my hand up and say, I've done plenty of project management myself. Mm. And I mean, and on, on a couple of occasions, I was accused of, you know, not fully comprehending, you know, what I, what, what I was adjudicating on and the problem is the level at which you're managing so if you're project managing at a code level and you're just looking at code that's one thing but if you're their project you take a step up and when i was uh, uh, in terms of level of what you're over overarching in your project plan you know for example when i worked at mpa engineering uh, we built switchboards we did the physical installation we wrote the code all of that mm. but they're all very different things they're very very different animals and whilst i had a lot of experience writing the code uh, I had less experience building the switchboards, although that changed the longer I worked there, and same with the site installation. So I had very little installation experience, and then I, I accumulated that as years went by. But when I was doing the project management, I would often get into strife, particularly with the workshop that were building the switchboards, because they would say, "Well, you're, you've given us however long to fit blah 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 to the switchboard. We need double that amount of time." And it's like, "Well, okay, I'm." Fine. So, I mean, I, I, I acknowledge the fact that, yes, I've been a project manager. Yes, I have messed it up as well sometimes. But, you know, I'm also a great believer that that's an unfair position to put me in. And the way that... <laughs> yeah, because sure. I was put yeah. in that position, right? I was told, look, you've got to do the project management on the whole thing. And on larger projects where you can justify the cost codes and say, well, okay... Um, we're going to have a representative from the workshop manage their schedule. We're going to have a representative from the install team do their schedule. And we're going to have you do the software schedule, John. And I'm like, great, that would work perfectly. And on the really big projects like the $10 million projects, that that worked because we had right. enough, cost to, enough cost codes to go around, enough money in the budget to do that. However, uh, when it was just me and the budget was tight, they're like, well, we've got enough money for you, one person to project manage it, so it's all your problem. I'm like, ha, yay. Yeah, but you don't have the expertise into various fields no it's not po at that yeah. point in my career this is going back six or seven years ago before i'd maybe even eight years ago time flies and you're having fun uh but yeah i was still getting that experience i mean i'm a lot better now uh, if i look at a switchboard well, i yeah, can say yeah 14 to 16 weeks for that one because it's you know like 10 yeah. meters long and well whatever. you know why it's because you, you got thrown in the deep end yeah oh sure yeah, yeah. absolutely so uh, to all the project managers out there i don't hate you Okay, I really, I don't. I love you, really. But um, just note that sometimes there is frustration. Okay, anyway, all right. Enough of a aside on that. The last thing that I have to talk about quickly is testing. And the, the, mm. the one point I want to make about testing 
that irritates me is that so many people test to make and they don't test to break. And I love that expression because it rhymes. <laughs> yeah. T- test to make, test to break. So, in other words, if you don't know what I mean by that, um, it means, I mean, test the functionality such that it functions the way the specification has described or the way that you have functionally intended it to work. So, yeah. I'm going to send this message and I'm going to get this response or I'm going to act on this and I'm going to get that and blah, blah, blah. All that is testing to make. In other words, make it work the way it's intended. <clears throat> What about sending a gibberish? Send it something that's out of bounds. Send it something that's illegal, invalid. Are you testing that? Test to break it. Try and break this thing. And it it doesn't just work on a a code level. Go up to a user interface level if there is a user interface. You know, click on stuff out of sequence. Do stuff that, that, you know, get someone that's never seen it before to try and break it. Because you just think, no matter how long you've been doing this, you think this code is ready to ship or almost ready to ship. I'm not going to name names, but someone recently that we both are acquainted with made this comment recently, perhaps on one of your shows, regarding <laughs> um, stuff that they wrote. Where, yep, it's uh, it's a few weeks away from being shipped. Anyway, oh. and, and then it went out for <laughs> testing and it's like, oh, crap. So, the, the point is that getting other people involved to try and break it, you know, absolutely invaluable. And when you test it, you should test both angles. That that's I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And as for whether you should test it or not, I think that's self-explanatory. Please, God, yes, test it. Yeah. So I think I'm kind of guilty of that myself. Uh, mm. Like I'll implement a feature and then I'll go and test it out. And oh yeah, look, the feature works. You know, eventually after a couple of iterations, sure. um, you compare and contrast that to somebody like Daniel Jelkett. Mm. You can give him a piece of software and he will break it within minutes. Doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's really, really good at breaking stuff, uh, and it. It, it really is. I mean, it's it's frustrating because like, oh god, Jesus, <laughs> that's good though. But it's it's good. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's just depressing to get the bug reports back. Um, <laughs> but a good. So one of the things that like I learned early on in my my video game career is that a good tester is worth their weight in gold. Oh yeah, and especially in video games. They, they're often young kids. They they pay them like crap because these kids come in thinking that like, oh my god, I get to play video games all day, mm. and it's like, yeah, have you tried playing broken video games all day? It's not as fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know they have weird incentives like the number of bugs logged and all of that. So it's kind of garbage in terms of repro cases. But a good tester with a good repro case who will sit with you and exactly figured out is oh my god that's like a blessing from god right there oh yeah um and because a lot of like the good ones do exactly what you say they they test to break and that's wonderful i don't have that in me because i'm my my loop is a i get a uh like an, an endorphin rush from the creative process right sure well i say creative but you know from making something yeah, work i know what you mean yeah 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 like i'm okay i've got nothing i've read a bunch of code i run it doesn't work. Iterate, iterate, iterate. Oh, that works. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, you're right. It's now, a rush. Yeah. Yeah, and then some. Often along the way, I'll notice that something else screwed up, and I'll be like, oh, "Okay," so then I'll have to go and fix that. But I very seldomly, just during my regular. I mean, I do. Just during my regular day to day, I don't often go and try to break the app that I'm working on. Uh, for my own app, for my own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've got like two partners. 
So I guess we do spend some time trying to beat on it, but yeah. besides, you know, it's not a day to day thing for for me. Yep, I I think one of the one of the things that occurs to me is that we ourselves, the developers of the code specifically that we've developed, are perhaps not the best people to be trying to break that which we created. You well, almost, you really don't want it. You don't even want to see it break. Yeah, well, that's it. It's 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 yeah. part of it's part of our pride, I think, maybe yeah. to an extent. Oh, I've seen I've seen things in games where once they get pointed out to me, I'm like, you know what? I've been coddling that. Like I knew, kind of maybe in the back of my head that that was not going to work. Yeah. So I just didn't do it. And games are this weird dynamic system, so it, you, you know you can avoid weird edge cases that you even subconsciously, you know. Mm-hmm. And once they've been pointed out, I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I kind of knew that was probably going to screw up in some way. Yeah, that's it. Which is depressing. But good. I mean, ultimately, you can't get good software without somebody having beaten on it. So Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess that, that advice by extension is that if you're working on your own, you ha- having a beater is absolutely essential. If you are uh, working in a team, having other people try in the team try and break your code uh, is is essential as far as I'm concerned. And when it comes to adding functionality, it's important to go back over the, the tests and regression tests, those things that you already uh, do to try and exercise and try and break the code again because every time you modify the code is the potential for you to mess up what previously used to work. And that's another thing that, that irritates me is that people add functionality to a function or an object and they'll say, oh, I only have to test the, the bit that I put in that the new bit works. And I'm like, well, what about all your uh, regression testing on all, all of the other things to break the code? And they're like, oh, but I only changed this one line. <laughs> yeah. With code that's running, you know, equipment, like in my particular case, specifically in the moment in oil and gas, if you get it wrong, I mean, there are some pretty massive consequences. So, you've got to do yeah. that. If it's yeah, yeah and, and another thing, even if you're just putting stuff into the app store it, and you put something out there, oh, I just fixed this bug, push it out. Time and review, time is money, let's get it out there. I've got angry customers. Well, guess what? Right. You fix one problem, you just create two new problems, let's say, by accident. And then suddenly you're like, oh no, oh no. Yeah, it take that time. Try and break it. Make sure that it's solid before you, you send it out. That's that's Anyway, so I'm not sure how many other ways I can say that. If I thought about it, maybe two or three more, but we might just leave that one. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Good testing is invaluable. Absolutely. So that's the end of my list. Did you have anything else that you wanted to, to talk about that you see as being critical or useful uh, in terms of going into good code? I think we covered most everything that I wanted to cover, um, mostly because I brought, got to break, uh, bring up uh, code complete. Yes. <laughs> which, despite being 20 years old, I still think has some uh, tremendous insights and is is invaluable to, to programmers, especially new programmers. Um, it's 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 a remarkable piece of work that hasn't just lasted 20 years. It's, it'll probably last another 20. That's that's how good it is. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we might wrap it up there, and um, we've had a few questions uh, come up during the show uh, in the chat room, so uh, please stick around after the show, and we're going to do a Q&A, uh, and that will be uh, appear after the uh, after the outro music, so, um, so keep listening. 
But uh, if you'd like to talk more about this, uh, you can reach me on uh, Twitter at John Chidgy and uh, check out my writing at techdistortion.com. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. And that's where you'll also find show notes of the episode under podcasts, Pragmatic. You can also follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements like when we're going live and uh, other related stuff. Uh, I'd also like to thank my guest host, uh, Guy English. And uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Guy? Uh, I'm at GTE on Twitter. And uh, I write very occasionally at kickingbear.com and I have a, a show called Debug. Fantastic. Definitely listen to Debug. It's great. If you're if you're into programming, you, yeah, it's awesome. Um, Thanks. Yeah, the latest one also, the Rev- um, Revolution 61 was uh, was really good too. So. Um, oh, yeah, those guys are great. Uh, yeah. we, got, we got one coming out soon with... Uh, it's a conversation with uh, Don Melton and uh, Neaton Ganatra. Ooh, okay. Hmm. Neaton having Neaton ran the apps group for iOS, and Don did a lot of the. Uh, he was in charge of the internet stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, so that I, was fun. I, and thank you for introducing me to Don Don Melton. And when I say introduced, I don't mean like personally, but I had no idea who he was when I heard him on Debug, and um, he's he's a great guy. So lots of he is great. Yeah. So he's, he's great. In, he's great in person too. Cool. So. I'm excited about that now ahead of time. So yeah. <laughs> cool. Awesome. <laughs> Alrighty. I'd also like to thank the two sponsors for this episode. So thank you to uh, Solver by Aqualia for sponsoring Pragmatic. Uh, you've tried a calculator and a spreadsheet, but if you haven't tried Solver, you're missing out on a great app that fits perfectly with the way your brain actually thinks about doing a calculation. Solver is available through the app stores, but there are uh, links from Aqualia's website. But if you use the URL in the show notes, it'll help out Pragmatic. So please use that URL in the show notes to learn more about this helpful little app and uh, also i'd like to thank uh, space nation and their mac app hue party for sponsoring the show if you have lifex or philips hue bulbs or both even hue party can control them and add some neat effects it's a free app for up to two bulbs so check it out at hue party or one word.com slash pragmatic for more and uh for our live listeners please stick around uh we'll be doing a q a after the show and uh to everyone else thanks for listening and thank you guy thank you YUX Huang. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, mate. Uh, okay, don't really want to open that big can of worms, but what about fighting political battles when trying to get a technical direction? Um, I guess... My well, that's a whole show by itself, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you, it is. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, it's really hard to give a single answer to a political battle, right? Mm. Uh, because it's the nature of human interaction that that's always going to be different. Mm. Um, I, I, I think one thing that you need to be aware of is that the best technical decisions aren't necessarily the best decisions for the product. Yes. Not only that, um, I don't think that in all cases that the best decisions for the product are the best decisions in line with what the company wants. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, you could have a product that, um, I don't know, uh, pushes some other aspect of the company. I mean, let's take a... I'm trying to come up with an example that I haven't worked on so I can actually talk about, but let's take uh, the Twitter, native Twitter client. Yep. Clearly, they make some decisions in there that are not the best for the product, obviously. Mm. Like the dick bar being the big one and, you know, <laughs> sponsored ads and, like, a bunch of other stuff, right? Um, but they are best in line with the, with the goals of the company. So they make the product worse but with the hope of making the company better. Um, and... So the, the, in terms of the technical design, you need to sort of understand that you're on at least a, a three-axis matrix here, right? No, oh, sure. Trying to and trying to figure out the best the best solution uh, for all of these various goals, and they may be weighted differently depending on what stage of the development or the financial straits of the company are at. Um, so in terms of dealing with the politics, I think you really need to try to understand everybody else's perspective and why they're trying to do what they're trying to do. Because while a lot of it sounds really stupid, most people have a good reason. Yeah. I think that's the at one least the from At least from their perspective, right? So... Yeah, they exactly. Could, could be wrong, but... Yeah, I no, I, I, I agree. I think the, the biggest problem that, that you face in a larger organization when you're developing software is that... Uh, well, honestly, d doing any kind of design, to be honest, is that when you're getting political push, people tend to simplify it and they tend to vilify the, the people that are pushing that down. And it's like, oh, well, they don't really understand the technical problems, so they don't really know this is really the wrong decision and, and so on and so forth. And I think everyone's sort of guilty to, of that of, at some point, being, being the, the programmer or the engineer that's trying to do the implementation and you know our, our initial reaction is oh politics is stupid and they just don't understand and so on and so forth but the funny thing that i found is that once you start getting into higher up in the business and you get to those business level decisions they start to make a little bit more sense i mean don't get me wrong right. don't get me wrong there's always going to be an idiot that says i want it pink because it's because pink's my color and whatever. And it'll be some kind of nonsense that makes no difference to anything, adds no value, and you're just trying to get a technical direction, what color do you want this thing to be? And, you know, whereas the far more useful approach would be, well, you know, we've, we we know that blue is a nice color because it relaxes people or, or whatever the heck. Was it Microsoft that looked into what shade of blue was the most relaxing for their background at some point? I forget, but... I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know Google AB tested a bunch of colors at one point too. Yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, as as ridiculous, almost ridiculous as that sounds... Well, there's enough, a reason that so much stuff is blue, right? Like, oh, sure. Just put it that way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need everything to look like the sky blue. But anyway... Uh, I guess what I mean is that uh, once you get uh, talking to the people who are making the political decisions and understand where they're coming from, 
you might just be surprised that there really isn't a political will necessarily. It's more about a, um, you need to understand the bigger picture. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to get stuck into the, wor- into the, you know, get stuck into the weeds of, of the development that you just, you vilify the, po- the politics and you start getting all worked up and angry about it when in the reality is, you know, chill out, man. Just, it's okay. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think a big one for me coming up was um, game design versus marketing. Oh, yeah. Where game design is like, basically, screw you, we're the artsy fartsy guys, we're going to do what we want. Marketing's like, we just can't sell this game. And you're like, oh, sure you can, you can convince them. And it's, that's, seeing marketing's job is to convince them that your artsy fartsy vision is the correct one and everybody should buy it is not appreciating what they actually do for a job. Yeah. Like they, it's, it's a two way street and I'm not saying that marketing should dictate all of your decisions, but I'm saying that pretending that they don't have any kind of input or insight into the outside world is, is pure folly. Sure. And you should be working together in order to kind of come to a solution that, that, that hits as many of the of the um, uh, the goals of the various points of the organization as as possible, which isn't to say like design anything by a committee, but it is at least be respectful of what other people in the company are trying to achieve, because nine times out of ten they're going home just as frustrated. Like when a project is going poorly, they are also going home being frustrated that the project is going poorly. So either you can just all get mad at each other, or you can kind of try to work it out and i guarantee you if you go into a meeting with that perspective uh you will come out with a better result for yourself yeah absolutely it's all about the frame of mind yeah Yeah, which isn't which isn't to mean that this is a selfish thing but it you will get better results by understanding other people's position because you will know you you can learn to understand where they can can negotiate and where they really can't and through that understanding, you can better figure out how to fit your plans and your objectives into that framework. Okay, cool. No, I, I, I do. I totally agree. And on the marketing side, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because marketing has this uh, stigma almost. I would yeah, say, exactly associated yeah, yeah. with you, it. And we, you kind of want to hate them, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, uh, the episode of Dilbert um, where. Uh, Dilbert comes in and says um, to the marketing department of the Nirvana company and he sits down to the marketing department. He says, you know, I, I can't believe you have a company without a marketing department. So, they create a marketing department for him. And he sits down and the marketing guy across the table says about his underwater barbecue. He says, okay, just a couple of thoughts. This is the marketing guy. <laughs> One, does it have to be underwater? And two, does it have to be a barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay. So, you know, and, and that's the perception is that marketing yeah. somehow don't know what they're doing. But the reality is marketing know a lot more about marketing. You know a lot more about programming. That's why you're doing each of your respective jobs. The two of you working together will get a better end result. For well, the okay. So, he, here's the other thing. Mm. Um, in the framework of that cartoon, um, the person who developed the underwater barbecue <laughs> wasn't able to communicate to the marketing team why that was a good thing. Yeah, true. Do you know what I mean? Like there's two true. there's two reactions to that. 
Merkin can be like, I don't understand under what a barbecue. And that's because the development team needs a little bit of a pitch guy. Like yeah. you need to be able to pitch in a certain way to be like, no, no, this is cool because look at this. Look at that. You need to have a little bit of internal marketing from your own thing. You you need to be able to sell your your own perspective. And to do that, you need to understand what they want to buy in, in terms of it. And in, it, this is confusing all kinds of terms because I'm talking internally and externally, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you can't pitch your own marketing people on something, they can't pitch it out to the outside world. Okay. Like the, you need yeah, yeah. you need them to buy into your project. Yeah. And there's two that you can either be like, ah, oh, screw those marketing guys, those idiots. Or you can go in with the attitude of like, no, I'm totally going to convince you it's awesome because it really is awesome. Yeah. And the longer I've been doing this sort of thing, it, pitching the idea, as you say, it's not just important to the marketing, but here's the thing. Pitch it to yourself first. If you can't pitch it to yourself and convince right. yourself that it's a good idea, why are you bothering pitching it to anybody else? If you can do that and start with that and then pitch it to marketing or, you know, the high-level management or whoever is who has the final say for a feature for your product, whatever, you know, then you got to start there. And absolutely, it's all about... you. Ha it has to be something useful other than just it, it would be cool if insert feature here, right? Because that's not yeah. enough. It just isn't. Yeah. Time is money. So, and I know that sounds ruthless, but honestly, that's business and that's just reality. And if you're not thinking like that, you're not going to be in business for long, I think. Yeah, that's it's a business thing. I mean, I love art games as much as anybody. Sure. Uh, or even really opinionated software, but opinionated software that's not useful uh, doesn't deserve to succeed in the marketplace. It doesn't. No. Uh, it you still need to earn that, right? Like you don't just get it because you're you've got something cool up your sleeve. Yeah, exactly. It's like you should buy this because it's cool under the hood, but you can't see it. And there's no yeah. useful features, but it's cool yeah. under the hood, man. So, it's, yeah, exactly. How do you... Yeah. All right. Cool. No, do I have, uh, also have another question. Um, the last one. Yeah. Last one. Behavior-driven development. Behavior-driven. So, the, the question just for the for listeners from Mac Birdie in the chat room. Thanks for this one. Uh, any tips or ideas on applying behavior-driven development to apps that are mostly UI experience-focused? Okay. So, Mac Birdie's provided a bit more. Um more generally, he says, provide, or he or she says, they say, uh, providing a kind of contract how the app should work instead of creating tests for the app's algorithms. So, oh, okay. Oh, so, so, so taking that oh, testing. So it would be like working from the, um, from, uh, oh, what's that development process? Uh, the, the agile stories. Yeah, something like that. And then you, so you define some stories and then you keep d developing your app until you fit a story. Yeah, essentially your your testability or your your judgment for the success of your testability is done at the higher level, at the UI um, a UI experience level, rather than testing the raw algorithms. At least that's the way I'm reading the question. Uh, I think I th no, I, you know what? I think that's um, I think that's a natural way to develop. So if if I'm understanding it correctly, sure. Uh, I think that's a natural way of developing software. I mean, you you figure out how you want your software to be used, and then you keep iterating on it until it fits that use case. I, I see uh, it as I see it as layers. I, I, you start out at the lowest level, and uh, he can just confirm that it's something like stories. Yes, so you know from from that agile development sort of angle. Then okay. So yeah, I think that I well certainly. 
it, it coming from the game world, uh, yeah, I mean, you develop a level with a certain number of scenarios in it, uh, or like little cool things you want to have happen, and you write the game in the engine, and you develop all the assets in order to make that happen, and until that happens, you're not done. Uh, and it's certainly in games, you don't really get to do a lot of unit testing, uh, just because, like I said earlier, it's it's a vast dynamic system, and testing any one unit is cute, but it doesn't really help the um, you know it's a dynamic system. So yeah, there's so much state flying around that it's really hard to figure out what what anything means in in isolation, uh, which is what unit testing is about, right? You take something in isolation and you test it in yeah. a giant system. That doesn't really help because the magic comes out of the system rather than the isolation. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I certainly when I develop my software, I aim to, I, I don't, we don't do an agile thing per se, but we have a use case that we want to f- achieve and we do that. Uh, and we just keep iterating until we get that. We, any obstacles we hit, we try to f- resolve them. Um, if I'm understanding this BDD specifically, correctly is that it's unit testing plus then the story stuff uh whereas in the games and the stuff i do i i often end up skipping the 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 unit testing stuff do you know what i mean like I, yeah i i, I, mean. I yeah. i'm mostly testing against the top layer of what the unit user is actually going to be interacting with rather than the entire stack which is what i think bdd is yeah. trying to achieve what what okay so when i'm doing testing on on my code what i'll do is i will start and i will get the code at a low level as solid as possible and make sure that it's you know test to make test to break and those will be very very thorough testing but once you start assembling the blocks together i pract- I, I pretty well stop doing that unless there's a big issue of course but and i go back to to re- to go back over the, the, that but the the low level testing but when you get to the the top end the the end to end functional testing perhaps is the best way i'd describe it uh, whereby you know you've got uh, a certain functionality that calls on a bunch of different uh, you know functions to do what it's got to do, and then you get a certain result, whatever that might be. And I'll have a list of tests, and I'll ensure that those tests you know that, that they pass. But I will seldom go back to that low level after that unless there's a big problem. So, or or I'm doing massive modifications, and I'm going to go back and regression test a lot of it. But you know, hopefully that doesn't happen too often because that really sucks. But anyhow. So I'm not sure if that answered the question, but um, thank you for the questions, guys. This is a, again, it's a new thing I'm trying. So I really do appreciate uh, the questions. Hopefully I'll have the showbot up and running in the next few weeks and it'll be a little bit more automated. And uh, as the show goes out and people become aware that it is uh, being streamed live, then hopefully we'll also get some more people. But a special thank you to everyone who's listening live in the chat room right now. You're the best. Thanks for coming along and, and joining in. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thank you.